1: and welcome to another episode of SoftRep Radio. As you've already guessed, I am not Navy SEAL Brandon Webb, nor am I SAS badass Big Phil Campion. But who I am is Alex Hollings, tech editor and senior staff writer for SoftRep.com and journalist that spent the last few years trying to study the way defense technology informs foreign policy. And in that pursuit, I've met some pretty interesting dudes. One of them we're going to be talking to today. In just a few minutes, We're going to talk to Justin Lee, Major Justin Hazard Lee. He's an F-35 pilot instructor who has nearly 400 hours of combat flight time at the stick of an F-16. He transitioned from the F-16 to the F-35, I want to say sometime after 2015. Is that right, Justin?
0: Yeah, about 2017, I transferred from the F-16 to the F-35.
1: Now he makes his living teaching the next generation of fighter pilots how to handle the F-35 who, unlike Justin, are actually coming up and they're going straight to the F-35 as opposed to learning on a fourth-generation platform. Is that right?
0: Yeah, we call them bitchin' babies because they don't know how hard it was back in the day. I
1: feel like that's like my daughter is growing up in a world where we have Netflix and like a 65-inch TV in the living room and you can watch anything you want, anytime you want. She's never really going to appreciate just how bad things were with a 25-inch Zenith TV and a VCR, you know? Yeah, they're, they're spoiled. (laughs) <laughs> Absolutely. Now, other than being an F-35 pilot, Justin's a busy dude. He also hosts the Professionals Playbook, which is a podcast that focuses on kind of gleaning the experiences and the wisdom from other guys that are kind of at the top echelon in their respective fields. You know, Justin's interviewed CIA operatives, Navy SEALs, astronauts. I think most recently you interviewed uh, MLB pitcher Jim Abbott on the podcast. Mm-hmm can't recommend The Professionals Playbook enough, not just because I was once a guest on the show, but also because it's really a great opportunity to learn the nuts and bolts of these really interesting fields that you might not have thought of otherwise. You know, Justin, how long have you been running the podcast?
0: The podcast, it's been going on for about a year. It started as a speech that I gave on Memorial Day. The city of Carefree wanted somebody who had been to combat who could discuss their experiences. So... After I gave the speech, there was a woman in the crowd who is a member of the Veterans Heritage Project, and she reached out and she wanted me to come speak to some of the groups and schools that they're associated with. And after doing a bunch of the speaking, I realized that there's a lot of people out there that want to do something great, but they don't know what or they don't know how. And so I thought I could help bridge the gap by going to some of these world-class experts and talking to them about what their successes were like, what their failures were like, how they overcame those failures. And what they do on a day-to-day basis to perform at a high level,
1: you know, and one of the things I really do enjoy about your show, not to just make this an advertisement for your podcast, but uh, it really humanizes these experts in a real way for me. You know, it's easy to think of an f thirty five pilot or let's say, an astronaut or a fortune Five hundred CEO as not real people. You know, it's easy to think of them in terms of their accomplishments or in terms of the the objectives they have in their day-to-day tasks it's harder to think of them as like a real guy or a real girl who goes home and has insecurities, has to work at being good at what they do, you know? And that's the thing I've really appreciated about your podcast. It's not just learning about how to excel in different fields, but it's also about learning about how to excel as a human being, you know, Right. like as a real person with real challenges.
0: Yeah. They're just normal everyday men and women and I think the big difference I see in them is they have a growth mindset and every day they're trying to get a little bit better at something. One of the commonalities is that they're able to see a goal way off in the distance, not be intimidated by that goal. So they see that goal, they start heading up that mountain, and then they're just looking, looking at their feet as they're walking every day and not going too far out to get intimidated.
1: Well, at the risk of sounding like I'm kissing your ass, that's kind of how you ended up in the seat of an F-35 as well, right?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think another attribute that I see out of these guests is mental toughness. And for me, that dates back to when I boxed at the Air Force Academy. So that was in Colorado Springs and Colorado Springs is, is right next to the Olympic Training Center. And so we would have sports psychologists come over and talk to us about visualization, mental self-talk, staying in the present moment, all these things that the Olympians did. I was able to apply it to boxing But more than that, I was able to apply it to flying. And I think that's why I was able to do well and excel in pilot training.
1: You know, I watched Broken Arrow just recently with my wife. We're working on, I was doing this for another Mm -hmm. article I was writing. John Travolta and Christian Slater play B2 pilots in Broken Arrow. And the movie opens with them in this huge, like incredible boxing gym, just beating the hell out of each other without headgear on. Like this is terrible sparring. And I turned to my wife and I was like, yeah, right. Like Air Force pilots really go
0: box. I'm an asshole. It turns out Air Force (laughs) Pilots really go box. I love to mix it up. Yeah, I know you do a lot of combative sports, and I think it's great for, like I said, mental toughness. Boxing is one of the toughest things I've done. You're training against an opponent that is training every day to kick your ass, and you're going to fight under the bright lights with your friends and family watching, and it could end in embarrassment. A whole bunch of things. You can get hurt. A lot of things could happen, and uh, you have to overcome that. You know that's
1: a huge point, man. When I back in my MMA days, I was on the Marine Corps first mixed martial arts team, and in uh, the, my first civilian tournament, which was kind of my first big audience fight, I did exactly that. I almost uh, got tapped out by kind of a chunky guy with black nail polish on, who was too fat to go shirtless. He wore an Under Armour shirt <laughs> into the cage. What you're saying really rings true for me. The idea that you know you can practice and you can train, but until you really step into the ring, you don't know how your training is going to manifest. And you don't know how your opponent's training is going to manifest. But this this actually leads me to a question. I wrote an article a few years ago about strategy for air combat and how there are parallels between that and mixed martial arts, or I would argue boxing, in that, like for the in the F-35, you have a system that actually tells you ahead of time, if at all possible, what aircraft it is that you're closing with, if it's an enemy aircraft and what capabilities it has.
0: Is that accurate to say? So, yeah, the plane does as much as it can to augment what we're doing. But ultimately, it comes down to the pilot. And like you said, there is a lot of similarity. I would say the biggest thing is the enemy always has a vote. You could be going up against an opponent. You don't know what he's doing. He could be the Golden Gloves champion, and you're going to get your ass kicked no matter what happens. So there's that area of uncertainty, the fog of, fog of war, and that applies to boxing. It applies to, to flying fighters as well.
1: It's that old football adage, that's why we play the game, right? Uh, Just Mm -hmm. because someone's the favorite on paper doesn't mean they'll be the victor. Uh, Yeah,
0: is full of examples of that.
1: Absolutely. But what I'm getting at with the idea of kind of knowing uh, what you're squaring off against, when I was in my fighting days, I would do my best to know as much as I could about my opponent ahead of time to kind of inform my training strategy leading into that fight. If I'm going to be fighting against a guy who's a stand-up fighter, who's got a significant reach, my training is going to aim towards mitigating Those strengths that he's got, right? I'm going to focus on my ground game. Conversely, if my opponent is a black belt in Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, I'm going to focus on my stand up game and trying to keep him there. I have to assume there's a certain bit of that when it comes to mitigating threats posed by enemy aircraft. If you're going to be going into contested airspace and you know for a fact that they have certain air defense assets, you're going to adjust your strategy to suit. Whereas if you're going into uncontested airspace, but maybe you have concerns about enemy air assets or something like that,
0: you're going to take on a very different approach. Is that fair to say? 100%. Mission planning and finding the weaknesses, finding your strengths as compared to the enemy is where the game is won. So we do a lot of intel. We do a lot of research. We do a lot of training. We do a lot of mission planning so that we can pair our strength with the enemy's weakness.
1: And mission planning really is kind of that missing magic ingredient to stealth that a lot of people, I think, don't really understand. When people say stealth, you know, when they're talking about a platform like the F-35, they tend to think of it as like this one technology, like there's a box that you bolt in that makes the F-35 invisible to radar. But that's not really what stealth is. Stealth is, you know, a bunch of different overlapping technologies and kind of approaches to the fight, right? That you need to make sure that you're, you're leveraging the strength of the aircraft against the weakness of the opponent,
0: right? And I would go even further past that. It, it has to do with how we're fighting these these tactical battles and ultimately the strategic wars. So you have to assess your strengths and be able to uh, be honest with yourself. So that's probably the toughest thing in assessing your strengths. And then you have to, the tougher part is assessing the enemy's weakness, the enemy's strengths, and figuring out a way to uh, to mitigate that. And that goes across the entire spectrum from the From the army guys on the ground to the Navy SEALs out there to us, I think as a U.S. force, what really makes us strong is our teamwork. And that starts at exercises like Red Flag, where we have people come in, you'll be the mission commander and you'll be in charge of 70 aircraft out there. And your job is to win a tactical objective out there and bring the group together, because that is ultimately where the wars are won and lost, not in the sexy, you know, stealth And the missiles that go, you know, super far, super fast, it's one in the communication and making sure everybody's on the right crypto to make sure everybody's on the right page to make sure everybody has the right contracts so that when when shit hits the fan that you're able to be a part of the team.
1: Now, for anybody who's not familiar with red flag, I think the best way to describe it would really be kind of a scrimmage between air assets. Uh, You know, we've got pilots that would be assigned to either side, and it really is like a pretty large scale mock air battle.
0: Yeah, it started in Vietnam. So we were realizing that we were losing a lot of pilots out there and that if we could just get a pilot past 10 missions in combat, that his chances of survival went up astronomically. So they started Red Flag to be as close to combat as possible. We were bringing in different assets and we're going up against top tier enemies. And uh, it's one of the best training tools that I've ever seen.
1: You know, that's something that I think a lot of people don't realize about Vietnam is that the air war, the air battles over Vietnam were really dramatic. And in a lot of ways, the dogfights over Vietnam were more like the dogfights that you see in movies than a lot of other, you know, more modern conflicts really were. The Vietnamese pilots actually had a really high success rate against American pilots for some time there, to the point where there are even legends about like a colonel tomb who supposedly had, I think it was something like 13 kills against American fighter pilots. I wrote a story about this recently because I think that's actually kind of bullshit. But one thing that is in the Vietnamese pilots' favor is that those guys were in the engagement through the entirety of the conflict. To your point about if you've got 10 combat missions, your your experience levels make you that much more likely to survive. You know, these guys had an entire war's worth of missions under their belt, whereas most combat pilots from the United States Air Force had 1 year in theater to accumulate kills. So when you hear about like there being a lot of a lot of really successful fighter pilots out of Vietnam there is some truth to that, but they also had a lot longer than the American pilots to rack up their kills. But to Justin's point about Red Flag and also about the Navy's top gun school, these are both programs that came in a very real way as a result of us kind of getting beat up by old Soviet era aircraft that had been given to the Vietnamese during the Vietnam conflict,
0: and the paradigm had changed a little bit. So in the 50s and 60s, it was all how high and how fast you could go. It was all about going Mach 2.5 at 60,000 feet. But uh, in Vietnam, we realized that it's more of a turning battle, and these missiles that we had weren't doing as well as they they should have. And what came out of that was John Boyd and his OODA Loop, as well as coming up with the F-16, which was again the paradigm had chi- changed from. Going high and going fast, to being able to turn extremely tight. And today, that paradigm has changed again to it being all about data sensor fusion, being able to work together, having networked aircraft. So, uh, so it's just about keeping up with technology. No, well,
1: absolutely, absolutely. And to that point, I would, I really would like to talk to you about. Let's say now, as an F thirty five pilot, let's say in some future conflict, in whatever war, whatever nation it may be in, you're given a target that needs to be neutralized, what as an F-35 pilot, as a member of the overall command structure, where do you go from there? Well, you know that we've got a structure that's full of bad guys. We know we need to put a whole bunch of ordnance on it. Now what?
0: Well, I'll talk to what we do in training here because that's a little bit a little bit better for, uh, for talking on here, but we work from the target backwards. So what are we trying to do? What effect are we trying to have? Are we trying to take out a leader? Are we trying to... Uh, take out a power supply? What is the best way that we can have the effect that we want? Because it's going to cost a lot of fuel. It's going to cost a lot of time, potentially will cost lives sending in pilots to go and take out this target. So you need to have the intel correct and you need to have the uh, the coin correct as well, making sure that you're having the the effect. Once you have the effect that you want, say it's taking out a building, then from there you work backwards. So what do we need we need a GBU-31 to impact with a you know, a slight delay. All right, so what aircraft is capable of that? Well, F-16 is, F-35 is, F-15 is. Pretty much they all are. Is this an extremely heavily contested area? Well, if that's the case, then potentially that's when you're going to use an F-35, which has stealth, to go ahead and, uh, and go in there. So it's all about working from the target backwards. You're also going to need a whole lot of support assets. So are there enemy fighters out there? Okay, well, you're probably going to need some sort of air support. So the strength of the Raptor probably comes into play. And you probably want some Raptors out there that are taking out enemy fighters. All right, what about the surface-to-air missiles that are trying to shoot you down? Okay, well, we probably need some F-35s in the mix so that uh, you know, we can mitigate that. We probably also need some growlers out there that are doing some jamming oh, you know, this is going to be more than a couple hundred miles away. You're probably going to need tankers on station. You're also going to need all those big aircraft out there. You're going to need a AWACS. You're going to need a river joint. You're going to need a ton of a ton of stuff goes into all of this. And like I said before, it's all about getting these people on the same page, making sure we're communicating, making sure our contracts are correct. We don't want, you know, some random aircraft out there transmitting a bunch of bad data. We want to make sure it's necked down to the appropriate amount so that they're not basically spamming you. They're giving you relevant data. It can't be too narrow that they're never going to see it. So it's, it's coming up with these contracts. And so just like anything, the devil's really in the details.
1: You know, that's one thing I think a lot of people don't realize is that air combat operations in a real way are like conducting a symphony, right? Because there's a real risk that if things aren't exactly on time, you're going to lose lives and not even to enemy fire. When it comes to refueling, for instance, not only is that an incredibly dangerous thing to do—that you guys, you know, do like it's an old hat—but as we saw last year uh, with the U.S. Marine Corps F/A-18 Super Hornet, it is incredibly dangerous, and little mistakes can cost a lot of lives when it comes to mid-air refueling. So when you're talking about so many really dangerous variables that are all ultimately in in the interest of combat operations, where you really are—it's us against them lives are almost always going to be lost during combat ops, right? So the idea is to make sure that it's not none of our lives that are lost. That's about mitigating risk, not just at the point of attack, not just when that F-35 is dropping that GBU-31, but that's about mitigating risk for the tanker crews, mitigating risk for the air support crews, mitigating risk for the troops on the ground that might be gathering intelligence or for the intelligence apparatus. There is a huge number of variables that go into play even for what we would consider, you know, as a journalist, a pretty straightforward airstrike, you know, the kind of airstrikes that we tend not to cover because in Afghanistan, we blow up another mud hut. The media at large tends not to be interested. But as far as the people that are actually conducting the operations, there are a huge number of variables. There's a lot more work that goes into it than just hopping aboard your fighter jet
0: and going zooming around looking for a target. One of the harder things to plan is just the taxi plan. So just Who's going to take off in what sequence? We're flying with fighters that don't have a lot of gas. So, uh, you know, if you have 100 aircraft that are getting ready to take off, that's going to take a long time. And I've seen seen a lot of mission planners overlook that, and that costs them the mission.
1: You know, and when we're talking about a fighter running out of gas, we are not talking about running out of gas on a road trip. You know, if you are in an F-35 that runs out of gas, you're now dead. You know, unless you found a, find a place to land, you're in a whole lot of trouble. So when we talk about things like fuel, we're, we really are talking about life or death.
0: Yeah, involved. it's all about fuel, all about weapons. And being in a fighter is kind of, a, is kind of an interesting experience because in Afghanistan, a place like that, you'll be flying around and you'll be pretty comfortable, definitely compared to a lot of your listeners who are, who are in the mud. So you're, you're at 20,000 feet, you're pretty comfortable, but you always know in the back of your head that you are five minutes away from having to outrun a group of Taliban uh, that are chasing you up a hill, and all you have is your M9 pistol out there. So it's kind of a kind of a eerie feeling, especially when we're just flying around as a two ship, and your wingman is is long gone. He's gone to the tanker, and you're just out there by yourself. So it's it goes back to that mental toughness that I learned in boxing.
1: No, that's a really really good point. That's not something that I think a lot of us think of often. Is the chance that you might end up being shot down and having to eject, and then you are going to be very much alone out there. That actually leads me to a question. I knew last year the Air Force started contracting out for M4 service rifles that could be broken apart to be carried inside the cockpit of aircraft, but I wasn't sure when they were going to start actually getting distributed. So I'm assuming that you guys have not yet received those. So you're still sticking with just a sidearm in the cockpit?
0: Yeah, I I haven't heard about that. I know some some of the European countries were flying around with that. That would be nice. But honestly, it's probably not going to turn out well for a a single pilot that ejects out there. You're talking about one of the most violent things that can happen to the human body ejecting from a jet. So we will pull up to 9Gs in our uh, day-to-day flying. So if you've ever been on a roller coaster and you kind of had your head pushed down a little bit from a a loop, that's about two and a half Gs. And we'll pull up to nine Gs. And at that G-force, you'll see the world closing in. So it's basically like you're looking through a toilet paper roll. What we're trying to do is we're trying to squeeze that blood back into our brain, because if you pass out at the speeds we fly, you're going to impact the ground in about 15 seconds. And it takes about 30 seconds for you to recover from a blackout. So we've lost about one pilot a year for the last 30 years to a G-induced loss of consciousness. So that's nine Gs. That's about what the human body can handle. Ejecting, you're talking about 15 Gs, and that's not even the wind blast. If you're going, you know, 300 knots, 400 knots, supersonic, you're probably going to break every bone in your body. So it's not going to not going to end well after that. You're having to do a PLF with a small chute that's probably been ripped apart a little bit. So it's like jumping off a two-story building probably similar to what a lot of your listeners have done. So try not to roll an ankle. We don't practice doing those PLFs too much. So at this point, you're probably injured. It's probably cold in the middle of the night, and you're not sure exactly where you are. And now you have a group of Taliban who just saw a jet crash, and they're trying to uh, trying to chase you down. So it's not an ideal situation.
1: If you're interested in trying to test your ability to do this, what I would recommend is jumping into a video game, like a racing game, like Forza, Get in the, one of the faster cars that you can get, get going as fast as you can, and then have a friend choke you out. <laughs> and then when you wake up, try not to crash, and you can go from there, you know? <laughs> but uh, I can only imagine, especially when it comes to just the sheer force of the ejection itself has been known to really, really hurt, even compress the spine of pilots in the past. So if once you land, assuming everything goes according to plan, which... What, what's the real likelihood that everything will go according to plan? You see it all the time, even with the United States with the most advanced air force on the planet, ejection seats don't always work. A year and a half ago, a B-1B Lancer crew attempted to eject. There was a malfunction in the ejection seats. They had to land the stricken aircraft themselves, which was really, real heroism, if you ask me. But that's not because a B-1B Lancer is a, a broken down, rickety old aircraft. It's because sometimes things just go wrong. For that to happen over the United States was an incredibly dangerous set of circumstances that they were able to manage. If that were to happen over Afghanistan, you know, you're looking at a very, an- another thing entirely, you know? So, and our
0: strength is, is flying fast. So we're going to be real far out there from the front line. So if you eject, it's going to take a long, long time for a helicopter to come pick you up.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Now, while we're talking about prior to that
1: ejection, while everything's still going well, when you're up there zooming around in the F-35, I want to go back to talking about like the red flag exercises, because one of the things I really wanted to talk to you about is the F-35's data fusion capabilities. Now, Justin and I have talked a bit about the F-35 offline. Actually, right now, if you go to newsstands, I think it's still out there. You can pick up an issue of Popular Mechanics that's got a picture of a guy driving around on a leaf blower hovercraft on the cover. Right there on page 68, you can find an interview between Justin and I uh, talking about what it's like to fly the F-35. So if after this episode, you're really interested in what it's like to be at the stick of this aircraft, I really recommend you go out and get that. I'd love to tell you it's my writing that made this interview interesting, but really it's Justin's answers. You get to learn a lot about the platform that I didn't know from all the open source journalism that I've done over the years that Justin was really able to shed a lot of light on. Uh, But but getting back to that, those red flag exercises, something that I always hear, I hear it from you, I hear it from the Lockheed Martin reps that I speak to, is this phrase, quarterback in the sky, to describe the F-35. The stealth capabilities of the platform tends to be less touted. And I think that's because we all know that the F-35 is a really stealthy platform. But this quarterback in the sky thing, I think
0: a lot of people aren't as sure about. Could you explain to me what that is? So we're going to have... 4 fighters, and by fortune I mean F-16s and F-15s that were designed in the 70s, they're going to be around until at least the 2040s. So it would be nice if we could I could just snap my fingers and everything would be a fit gen fighter. But these things are going to be around for a long, long time. And so what that means is we have to work together as a team. An F-15 can carry a lot more missiles than I can in my F-35. So it's important that we work together as a team, My strength in the F-35 is being stealthy and being able to see a lot of things. So with those two strengths, I can be a quarterback out there and let the Fortune fighters know where the bad guys are. If it's a really bad guy, obviously we want to save our missiles. But if it's a real tough target, then we'll go in and kill that target so that we're not risking the, uh, the Fortune guys out there. But ultimately, we want to use their weapons and their missiles so that we can stay on station longer. We're not having to burn gas and use our missiles and and have to go home. So we'll be the quarterback out there. Additionally, we have a lot of situational awareness. So no plan survives first contact with the enemy. You need to have a mission commander out there that can see the battlefield and make real-time smart audibles when things don't go perfectly according to plan.
1: And I think that's super important again to focus on that point you made at the beginning. These fourth generation fighters are going to be around for a long time to come. I mean... The Air Force is ordering new F-15EXs that are going to start production here in 2020, which means those platforms, I mean, with 20,000 flight hours anticipated out of them, are going to be around for decades. For those who aren't that familiar with fourth-generation versus fifth-generation fighters, there isn't really an exact definition that's accepted worldwide, differentiating between them. It's kind of more branch and industry specific, you know, some companies have some variations on what they consider the definition, but a fifth gen platform usually is stealthy by design instead of being an aircraft first and then stealth added to it. Stealth was intrinsic to the design of the aircraft. They tend to have data fusion capabilities. They tend to be multi-role fighters. Justin, is there anything I'm missing out on that you would say really differentiates a fifth generation fighter from a fourth generation one? I think you nailed it with that. And so fourth-generation fighters, the the big telltale characteristic that you would say differentiates them from something like the F-35 Justin's flying is that they're not stealthy. You know, they do pop up on radar. The F-15 has got a huge radar cross-section when compared to the F-35. But there are some benefits to having those fourth-generation fighters around. Like Justin just mentioned, the F-35, when it's in stealth mode, I guess you could call it, when the F-35 is trying to be stealthy, its payload capacity is only four weapons, you know? maybe four air-to-air missiles or two air-to-air missiles and two, you know, kind of ground bombs. The F-15 isn't trying to be sneaky, so you can strap all kinds of ordnance to that platform. And feasibly, using an F-35 to kind of coordinate the battle, you can leverage the firepower an F-15 or an F-16 carries into the battle way better than you ever could before, right? Yep, you nailed it. And part of that, part of that situational awareness that you get, I know you can't talk too much about the data fusion capabilities the F thirty five offers, but I do want to make sure people understand just how how awesome and important it is. Uh, part of that is the helmet interface, right? You know, the F thirty five has got famously these four hundred thousand dollar helmets that can show you way more of the battle space than you were able to really understand
0: in one streamlined view when you were an F-16 pilot. Is that something you can talk to? Sure. Imagine it's true augmented reality. So imagine the battlefield and you can look out there and you can see circles over all the good guys. And then you can see numbers with the uh, flight positions for anybody that's flying in your formation. When you look out you see diamonds over all the bad guys and you can see you know who's targeted to them. It's it's pretty amazing. The true augmented reality of it. It's it goes back to the, the sensor fusion. So in the F-16, there's none of this. Every sensor was tied to a different display. In fact, in the F-16, we had quite a few pilots misprioritize, and they would run into mountains and kill themselves. Again, we talked to one pilot a year was lost to a, a G Lock. About a pilot a year was lost to a, a CFIT controlled flight into terrain. So it was the pilot's brain that was having to fuse all this information together. And now some of those F-16s have some augmented reality systems, but this is that on steroids. So you can just look out of your jet and see all the data that would normally have been through different dials and screens in front of you.
1: Now just think about all those people who tell you about distracted driving, right? You know, Don't look at your cell phone while you're driving. Don't change the radio while you're driving. Imagine that you're in a combat aircraft, you know, flying at Mach 1 feasibly, and you're trying to keep tabs on multiple displays that are just below your field of view, as well as 360 degrees of what's around me, how fast am I moving, and how far am I from the ground. That's just how complicated the job is for your average fighter pilot. And that's one of the ways that the F-35 is really changing the game, is it's alleviating a lot of that stress and giving guys like Justin a chance to focus on the task at hand.
0: Yeah. A lot of people ask me what what was more fun to fly the F-16 or the F-35. And I think it's both equal. Like the F-16, when it was designed, it was cutting edge and people said the same thing. It's too automated. It's doing too many things for you. Same with F-35. But what that allows you to do is take it a level up. You're able to be a little bit more strategic. You're able to, again, going back to being the quarterback out there and making decisions that are just outside of your jet, outside of your flight, so that you can help out other formations out there. So I think as fighter pilots, our job is to make good decisions. And there are thousands of decisions to be made every flight. And it augments those decisions so we can make more of them and better decisions throughout the course of a sortie.
1: You know, and this is a really really important thing to talk about as well, because the F-35 wasn't built to be a dog fighting platform that's not its purpose you know uh the f-22 Raptor, which is also a fifth generation fighter for those of you guys that may not be that familiar with these aircraft the f-35 does draw a lot of the headlines but prior to the f-35 there was the f-22 which is really an air superiority fighter it's kind of the the next generation of the f-15s lineage whereas in a way you could kind of say the f-35 is the next of the f-16s lineage is that fair
0: Yes, the F-22 is kind of based on F-15 and the F-35 was semi-based on the F-16.
1: And because of that, if you're trying to plan an operation, like Justin was mentioning earlier, and you've got enemy fighters that you're worried about, the F-35 is not necessarily the platform that you would send to go engage enemy fighters. The F-22 theoretically is the one we have purpose-built for those reasons. But the F-35 has had huge success in these red flag training operations. I don't want to quote the number off the top of my head, but we're talking like double digits to one in terms of F-35 enemies killed versus F-35s lost and these mock dogfights. So obviously, even though the F-35 wasn't necessarily built to be a dog fighter, it is really, really good at engaging enemy fighters. But I would argue, kind of in contrast to what we were talking about with the Vietnam conflict, the F-35's real money maker is engaging opponents before they even know it's around. As opposed to getting into real tight turning dogfights like you might have seen in the 1960s, is that something you can talk to at all, or is that kind of verging on on the territory of
0: opsec? I would say the paradigm has kind of changed again. So we talked about how fighters were all about going high and fast. Then they became about turning. Now it becomes about detecting other fighters out there and being able to be stealth and have them not see you. And that's one of the biggest strengths of the F-35 is we can see a lot of things they have trouble seeing us. So,
1: But that, that raises a really, really good point about when we're talking about the F-35 versus the F-22 and what they're built to do, the F-35 wasn't necessarily built to engage enemy fighters, but because of that paradigm shift, but because the way air combat is changing, the F-35 has become dominant, at least when it comes to these mock battles. We haven't seen the F-35 square off against an enemy fighter uh, in real life yet, but I want to make my prediction here because I know... For a fact, no matter how hard I try to get Justin to talk about enemy aircraft, Justin will not talk about Chinese airplanes, Russian airplanes, anybody else's airplanes, even if I keep poking them. So I'm going to make my prediction. People always ask if the Su-35 could beat an F-35 in a dogfight. The Su-35 is Russia's most capable fourth-generation fighter. Their fifth-generation fighter, the Su-57, is dog shit. I'm not worried about that. The Su-35 is a very capable fighter, but in my opinion... The F-35 would kill it before it put its pants on. The Su-35 and an F-35 in a knuckles out, you know, dogfight. Maybe you know it's real acrobatic, it's real fast, it's got real tight turns. In my opinion, the F-35 would be the sniper in this instance, and it wouldn't bother getting in the ring. I know Justin won't probably talk about it, but I'll ask you anyway. I mean, if you want, you can just kind of like say wink and nod to me if you think I'm right. Or kind <laughs> of the to speculation to you. All right, that's fair. That's fair. The most important question I have for you, though, about this augmented reality and these four hundred thousand dollar helmets, is: Are they comfortable? I mean, you got a lot of hardware, under especially
0: your head. under G's. So it's going to be a little bit heavier than our uh, Fortune uh, hammocks that we were flying with in the F-16. So it's a little bit heavier, a little bit more cumbersome. And now that the F-35 can pull up to nine G's, it hurts your neck. So both so short term so and long term. You're doing long-term. neck workouts the gym, right? Yeah, I mean, we'll do neck, work, neck workouts and, and leg workouts are the, the biggest thing that, that we'll do to be able to survive the G-forces. So it is cumbersome. There are a lot of pilots that end up uh, going on to having neck and back issues after flying. And that's true for, for all the fighters out there.
1: I can only imagine. I can only imagine. But uh, you touched upon something there briefly that I'm not sure people will really understand. And you said, given that the F-35 can now pull 9Gs, it's an increased issue. I want to point out to people that you're not suggesting that something mechanically has changed about the F-35 in the recent past, but we're talking about software upgrades, right?
0: So these jets are a lot more like your cell phone than like a like an airplane. So everything is software dependent. If your cell phone does not have good software, it's just a paperweight out there. Same with these jets. So the software was lagging a little bit, but we had new software last year that allowed us to pull a lot more Gs. So we were able to pull what the airplane was designed for, nine Gs. It also unlocked the gun. So it's a lot like a video game in that uh, everything is tied to the the software. And overnight, the jet can get a lot better. So I would say it's more like driving a Tesla than a 1960s Corvette now.
1: And I mean, you really need to be a student of your platform all the time then in order to stay on top of... Because I mean, I can only imagine if you flew an F-35, went to bed that night, got up the next day and the capabilities of the platform had been grossly opened up. All of a sudden it can do, you know, more G's in a turn. All of a sudden it can accelerate faster. All of a sudden you have access to a 20 millimeter cannon. If you're not staying on top of the study side of this, the, the, the academic side of flying this platform, it's going to surprise the hell out of you. I'd imagine.
0: Yeah, that's, the fun part, though, too, we actually have a say in where these tactics are going. In the F-16, the tactics had been designed over the last 40 years, and the F-35, we're kind of making up new tactics as we go along. So that's the fun part: is being able to be creative and figure out new things. The difficult part, like you said, is things change constantly, so you always have to be studying. So before sortie, I would say we spent about three hours mission planning. For the flight itself, we'll, we'll show up in about two and a half hours before we take off, and we'll go through a flight brief, going through a rehearsal of everything we're going to do. We'll go and fly and just for about an hour and a half, and then we'll come back and we'll spend three to five hours debriefing every single decision that we made and seeing if we could have done it better. And on top of that, we'll do some studying every day on, uh, on new capabilities, on new things that we're, uh, we're trying to work on.
1: It's in that after action report that the real gems are found. It's my belief. Not, whether you're talking about flying a sortie in an F-35 or going on vacation with your family to Disney World, the after action report is the, the most important part, right? Because that's Absolutely. where you can Debriefing identify what is the most wrong.
0: important thing. And that's actually one of the things that I've learned in my podcast is a lot of these top professionals, they don't do a complete debrief in their field. So that's one of the things that I think the whole world can get a little bit better at having their debrief a little bit more like a fighter debrief in that we go through every decision point afterwards and figuring out what we could have done better, consolidating that in lessons learned, and then uh, writing that down for the next flight.
1: And writing it down for the next flight. That's the crazy important part here, because we're talking about not just making this better for Hazard, for Major Lee, the next time he jumps in an F-35. The end goal here really is The F-35 is going to be an operational aircraft for 60 years to come or more, right? 50 years from now, Major Lee is not going to be there to impart these lessons, right? That's the benefit of these after-action reports is that the flying that Justin is doing today is going to inform the tactics that are utilized in combat 30 years from now. And when you think about that, that makes your day job pretty crazy, right?
0: Yeah. I mean, especially since this is kind of the, probably not the first, but the second iteration of going through tactics and figuring out what's going on. So what we set up right now, it's going to, it's going to live a long time. And this jet, like you said, is going to be around for a very long time, longer than I'm going to be around. That's for sure.
1: Yeah. This is a place where the United States is absolutely at the forefront here, you know, because China and Russia both do have fifth generation platforms. China has the J20 and eventually the J31. Russia has the Su-57. However, In both of these instances, we're talking about a token fleet. You know, China has maybe fewer than 20 J-20s that are operational. I think only one that has the actual engine system that they intend to field the jet with. Uh, Likewise with Russia. They have, I think, 13 Su-57s, one that's got the the engine that they actually intend to field these platforms with. So uh, the United States, on the other hand, we have hundreds of F-35s. I think a total of 380 have been delivered from Lockheed. And then we have another 186 total, so in terms of operational fewer, F-22s. The United States has two operational fifth-generation aircraft in the skies right now, which really sets us apart from other nations in the world. But you know what we're talking about here is that in 50 years, that will no longer be the case. So in 50 years, it's going to be this head start that pilot instructors like Justin are creating for the United States that's going to continue to give us the advantage as this technology becomes more pervasive worldwide. But that leads me to another important question for for the folks out there that might not be that familiar with F-35 or just fighter operations in general. How much time would you say a week or a month do you actually spend in your aircraft getting accustomed to flying the platform or really taking it to the skies? How much time do you spend in the cockpit?
0: Well, to answer or to add on to what you said before, it's pretty cool. I went through pilot training out here in 2011. There were only F-16s out here. I came back in 2017, and there were, I think there were about 50 F-35s out here, and we're just constantly getting a stream of them. My new squadron, we started off with two F-35s, and now we have a full squadron out here. So, it's been really fun to see these new jets show up from the factory with six, seven, eight hours when I was flying F-16s before out of Korea that had been uh, had been built, I think, in the 80s.
1: I had a buddy who was a Harrier mechanic in the Marine Corps. And he was like, we do not have a single aircraft that is younger than me.
0: Yeah. Well, they yeah. have F-35 now. So I think they're yeah. the biggest jump from going from a Harrier to F-35. They, yeah, that's got to be a hell really of a one out. But uh, in terms of weekly flying, it just depends. So we all have different jobs that we do on the base. So these different jobs will be being a flight commander, being in charge of some other pilots out there, making sure that their officer performance reports go up, all the standard stuff that's that's in the military. So I would say we average about three flights a week, but it just depends. If you have a more important job to the base, if you're the wing commander, you're probably flying only once a week. So it just depends. It goes in phases as well. Depending on when people are going on leave, what exercises we're doing. So some people are getting a lot more flight time than that, some people a lot less. But so that goes back to why it's so important. Flying these jets is incredibly expensive. So much man hours and time goes into building these things. I was able to go to the factory in Fort Worth a couple months ago. It's almost a mile long of just people putting together parts for the F-35. And you'll look into one of these clean rooms and there are people in these clean rooms for 10 hours a day that are laying carbon fiber strips just to make one panel for your F35 so it's it was almost it was humbling and also it made me want to be a better pilot because so much so many people are working so hard to uh, to make this program work so that's why it's so important to do your studying so important to debrief important to visualize what you're doing so going back to some of that mental training in pilot training especially you can fly a whole sortie in your brain, seeing different things out there and what you would do. So it's 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 kind of like playing a sport in that you can visualize exactly what's going on. And then on game day, you might see some variations of that, but you've already fought the battle in your head.
1: And while we're talking about the F-35, there's a few just easy ones I wanted to toss your way. Like one question I really wanted to ask was for the people out there who've never been in the military, uh, you know, I've never been around military aviation. What is something about flying the F thirty five or the platform itself that you think might surprise folks that their only understanding of this aircraft has come from headlines on CNN? You know, is there is there anything to your experience or to the aircraft itself that you think people didn't notice that is actually really really cool or just really interesting?
0: It's a good aircraft. I, I think I'm not that biased because I grew up on the F sixteen and the F sixteen will always be my first love, but the F thirty five is a much better aircraft. I think it's a technological S-curve. It's like when the first iPhone came out, it, was, it, it had a lot of issues. It had a lot of bugs because everybody was using Blackberries at the time. But you can see there are no Blackberries around anymore. Everybody's using smartphones now. And it's the same thing with the F35. When it first came out, it had a lot of bugs. They were working through it. That's the same with any new technology. But we finally hit the inflection point. I think 2018 was the big... Moment when you know we unlocked a lot of the capabilities of that F 35, and in five years, this jet's going to be a beast, in 10 years, it's going to be incredible. I have a, a new uh, kid on the way. When that kid, you know, if he becomes a fighter pilot, this jet is going to be a whole new animal. Look what we did with the F 16, it was when it first came out in the 1970s, it was just a BFM machine with some AIM 9 Papas on the wings, and now it's doing seed, it's doing cast. It's doing DCA. It's doing all these mission sets that it was never designed to do. So the F-16, F-15 had a had a 40-year head start in terms of optimization. The F-35 is going to get there.
1: People really do forget that the F-16 originally was, in a big way, kind of intended to be an air superiority fighter. It wasn't really built specifically to be a multi-role or, like you said, a close air support aircraft. And in the intervening decades, it has proven itself to be incredibly effective as a ground engagement platform, but that wasn't necessarily what it was set out to be. Likewise, with the F thirty five, it was designed to be a ground engagement platform, and it has since proven, at least in training environments, to be an incredibly capable dogfighter. You know, uh, so I think that your your analogy really holds true that it takes a little bit of time to really figure out the real strengths of these aircraft once you get them into the sky. Once you get them into the hands of capable pilots, I want to point out that you mentioned you've got a kid on the way. Which, of course, congratulations! Because anybody who follows me on Instagram knows that I am the world's most boring dad. But I want to ask you. I talked to you about this before. I know that this is kind of a sensitive subject, but we really need to talk about the movie Iron Eagle.
0: Because you got it.
1: All right. <laughs> I grew so, up to that. I, I haven't seen this movie in probably 25 years, but I do really remember as a kid. You know I've got I've got vision problems. I've got a you know so I I would never have been able to be a fighter pilot. But when young Alex was aspiring to be a fighter pilot, I'd watch movies like Iron Eagle where it seemed a lot like being a fighter pilot was just like having like a hot rod that you worked on in your garage that you can feasibly take out whenever you want.
0: And, yeah, uh, I can't really remember too much of Iron Eagle. I remember he was flying around with a Walkman. And I remember there's Chappie, and he went and saved his dad, and I ran by himself. So I forgot about the. Walk-in. I have a few are memories you able from that. to play music while you're flying? Unfortunately, not. And there's just too much going on. You want to focus on on the radio calls that are out there.
1: Yeah, I can imagine it would not go over well if someone was trying to talk to you on the radio and you were playing, you know, the Danger Zone. But, but all right, so that was the real. But question. Iron Eagle
0: set me up for some high expectations, so I, I I've been consistently disappointed ever since that is <laughs> i still firmly
1: believe that eventually your son's going to get to steal an f-35 with a salty old colonel to go and rescue you from wherever it is that we're going to war i still lord knows i hope you're not still a major by the time your kid's flying
0: <laughs> but <laughs> well tom cruise in his new in this new movie is still a i think a colonel i don't even think was
1: he I, i'm not even sure if he's a colonel yeah but I will say that the trailer for Top Gun 2, I honestly really enjoyed the trailer for Top Gun 2. I stand by the fact that my opinion is that Maverick was an asshole. He was not the good guy in that movie. I think Iceman is the superior pilot. I'd love to get your take on that. Uh, but the Top Gun 2 trailer was really, really exciting. But man,
0: Ed Harris is old. so is yeah. Tom Cruise.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it's just hard to picture those they've guys. They've
0: aged. They've aged. Yeah. But uh, Yeah, I think that's one of the, we when you were asking some questions before about misconceptions, one of the things, especially now, is we'll be the mission commanders quite a bit. And you can't go out there and be an asshole and, you know, get the best performance out of your team, even though everybody has different capabilities, some better than others. You can't kind of, you know, be an asshole and alienate one of the members of your team. So I think it's about being a leader. And we're trying to train the next generation of fighter pilots out here And we go to great lengths to try and make sure that people are confident, but they're not overly cocky. And another misconception was you're talking about eye problems. I get asked all the time, hey, I have eye problems. Can I still be a fighter pilot? There are a lot of fighter pilots out there with glasses. So just go see your flight doc or go see a doctor and see if you can actually fly because there's surgeries you can do. There's waivers you can get. A lot of fighter pilots don't have perfect vision.
1: Unfortunately, in my case, it's temporary blindness. So, so it's, that might hurt. So, yeah, so I'm out. But can't I feel. Yeah, absolutely. Right. But uh, based on your response there, uh, I would assume you're more of an Iceman, although Iceman was, I'll admit, uh, gruff. But uh, it's my opinion that his position that what we need to be doing is ensuring the safety of the other pilots around us instead of making sure that we are the coolest fighter pilot. I think that's, that's a better, that's a leader I'd like to follow into a fight as opposed to Honestly,
0: Maverick. I'm going to have to go back and rewatch the original Top Gun. I'm sure go I'm going to get Top a lot Gun of questions again. with Top Gun 2 coming out.
1: Watch Top Gun again with the Alex Hollings mindset of Iceman's the good guy and Maverick's a prick. Tell, tell I actually
0: haven't watched too many fighter movies. They're just so unrealistic, but I think that might be a, a, fun, a fun day going back and watching a bunch of uh, fighter pilot movies.
1: I can only imagine because what I hate about watching Marine Corps movies is usually the vernacular. You know, uh, nobody ever gets the way we speak to each other. Right. But when it comes to uh, in an aircraft, there's so much technical stuff to also get wrong.
0: I think uh, it was behind enemy lines that that did it for me. That the missile that chased him around for about five <laughs> minutes yes. after that, I was, was like, I'm done. Was
1: that Owen Wilson?
0: Was That was, that was that Owen her? Wilson.
1: It's kind of like I have. To, it's kind of like the Fast and the Furious mixed with the military movie. A lot, a lot of military aviation movies really are, you know. But that actually, I would like to ask you a few questions about kind of pilot culture here as we're winding down. One question I'd really love to ask you about. I know that you don't have a ton to say on this subject, but it's been big news in the past few months that uh, a few videos that were recorded uh, from the nose, the Fleer camera on the nose of uh, some F A eighteen Super Hornets, some Navy aircraft, of what looked like UFOs or Tic Tacs or unidentified flying objects, unidentified aerial phenomenon. A lot of people are calling them now, among other things, anomalous aerial phenomenon. Someone corrected me on Twitter the other day. So the Navy now is establishing a very clear uh, procedure for how to report unusual sightings, anomalous sightings, up your chain of command to see whether or not it warrants further investigation. And in 2017, it was revealed that the Pentagon really does investigate reported sightings of unusual objects in the sky, normally provided by military aviators, because there are a few professional observers that are more respected when it comes to identifying something strange on the horizon, you know, in the sky. So, Justin, I get the gist that you've never seen a UFO yourself or anything that you weren't really sure of. Is that fair to say?
0: No, I honestly have not seen a UFO. I've never even heard of any of the pilots that I've been with seen a UFO, are glints of light, things like that. I don't know how somebody could, I guess it's unidentified, but when you're looking at the sky, there's there's lots of glints of light and things like that. So I know I'm not going to see some uh, alien spaceship with ET on it.
1: But I guess that's, that's an important question is, do you feel as though you don't know any pilot who's ever felt as though he's seen anything? Do you think that that could be because pilots are reluctant to talk about it? Or do you think it's that, they just really haven't seen anything. I'm not suggesting that it's just because they're reluctant to talk about it, but I would be interested to know among fighter pilots, are you going to get laughed at if you say, "Hey, man, I saw something weird," you know, flying off my left wing on that last sortie?
0: Uh, will you get laughed out of the room, or would people listen? It depends on who it is. If it's the brand new pilot out there, he might get laughed out of the room. But uh, no, I don't. I, I think I think we would definitely. Definitely accept a, you know, if somebody saw something out there. I just, I guess I don't really believe in UFOs out there. There may be airplanes that you don't know about flying out there, but definitely not some sort of alien spaceship around. So I've never seen it. I'm pretty confident that the pilots that I fly with, if they saw something, they would definitely let me know. And there's so many recording devices and stuff on the jets that you'd have a pretty good indication be able to look at it afterwards and and assess what it is. But there are thousands of airplanes flying around. There are different times of the day where the sun glints off different aircraft and can make it look kind of funky. So I, I really don't believe in, in UFOs and don't the pilots who are talking about UFOs. I think they believe they saw something. But I think if you actually go into the physics of what was going on, that they just saw some glint of light or something like that.
1: No, man, I totally get that. I really do. I I Sorry to spoil
0: the, the topic.
1: No, no, that's this is actually this is the way I always spoil this topic. Every time I start talking about UFOs, I'm torn because I want—I really do love the idea, you know, of spotting something unusual, something foreign and truly exotic in the sky. But you know, but then I do things where you know I took a map of UFO sightings that have been recorded from you know one of those websites that collates them, and then overlaid it over military installations in the United States, and you'll find that they're grouped over military installations and things like that. I do genuinely believe that the vast majority, the vast majority of weird lights that people see in the sky are misidentified military aircraft. You know, helicopters that aren't flying like commercial aircraft. So in the distance, you go, what the hell is that? You know, Uh, but I will say- If we light our
0: afterburner at night, you know, the thing will shoot out about 50 feet behind us. So if we're just flying over a a rural neighborhood and light our afterburner, you don't see anything. And all of a sudden you see this huge flash of light. And then once we come out of afterburner, it'll disappear. So I think it's, it's more things like that and it'll be a tremendous amount of noise as well. So I think it's things like that.
1: I am inclined to believe you. However, when I see reports like commander Fravor, who was the, the F 18 pilot who recorded that FLIR footage, uh, he's pretty convincing. And I do love the idea of not being sure. You know, I'm, I try my best to keep my mind open to the possibility that I'm wrong. Logically speaking, I have yet to see any evidence for anything that really sells me on the idea that aliens are here just kind of hanging out and making a reality show out of us.
0: And how many cell phones are on the planet. Each cell phone has a has a camera in it. So just show me one good picture of a alien spaceship and I'll be convinced.
1: But but I think where you and I part ways is that you have a bit of an adversarial role here. You're you're pretty sure it's not. Whereas I want there to be UFOs. I just haven't seen any evidence that's convinced me yet. But man, as soon as I see some evidence, I'm going to be stoked. You'll see me sharing it on Facebook. Me I'll, be too. Yelling, you know? I, I'll
0: be too. I'll be just as excited. I think that'd be cool. It might be like Independence Day.
1: Yeah, which actually, I uh, that's one I should have brought up. But uh, hopefully not quite like Independence Day. I mean, we did win at the end. But I don't want to have to rebuild the Burger King down the street from my house. So, well, man, I got to tell you, this has been a genuine blast getting to hang out and talk to you. Before we go, I want to make sure that I one more time remind everybody to check out your podcast, which is called The Professionals Playbook. You can find it on, uh, on iTunes, but you can find it on Stitcher and all sorts of other places where podcasts are available. And uh, where else
0: can people find you if they just want to engage with you on social media or, you know, become fans of your work? I do do a lot on Instagram at Justin Fighter So that's probably the, the best place to find me.
1: And honestly, check out his Instagram, because if, if you like military aviation, particularly the F 35, you're going to see some awesome pictures and some awesome videos from the stuff that Justin and the rest of the guys he works with are doing they, you really do have an incredible job, man. You know, I got to tell you, I'm pretty jealous every time I'm scrolling through and I'm posting another picture of, you know, my keyboard and, uh, and then I see you flying around in an F 35. I got to tell you, I'm pretty jealous.
0: Well, it's it's fun. It's something I've wanted to do since I was five years old. So it's it's awesome to be able to live a dream come true. And hopefully I'm helping out other people do that via the podcast, whether they want to be a fighter pilot or not. Awesome, man.
1: And again, I remind everybody, go pick up this month's copy of Popular Mechanics, where it's got an interview with Justin Lee in there where you can learn more about the F-35, more about what it's like to fly this platform and more about how hard it is to become Justin, how hard it is to become an F-35 pilot. He's a pretty, you know, unassuming guy. He makes it seem like he's just a regular dude. It's a pretty incredible feat to become, you know, the person in charge of $100 million worth of state secrets, you know. So uh, congratulations to you, man, for your career in
0: the Air Force and for your podcast. And thanks a lot for your time today. Well, thanks, Alex. I appreciate it.
1: Awesome. All right. I'll catch you later. All right.
0: You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio. New episodes up every Wednesday and Friday. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at Softrep Radio.